How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And one other thing, I don't know, uh, where did Sandy go? Were you, were you were back with the ladies for prayer? Did Pam tell you all about Ken Tiviage? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that was a great. Ken Tiviage, who was a deacon at Preston City Bible Church, moved to Florida about the same time we moved back to Houston. And he's in construction trades and uh, a builder. And because of all the problems there, he's been out of work more than he's been in work the last six or seven years. And when uh, I was spending some time with uh, Jim Speedy's son, Mark, Mark has a large construction company in Florida. I put them together. Ken called me today saying he's got a, got a new job working for Mark. So that's just one of the byproducts. That's a great answer to prayer. All right, well, let's have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this evening for these answers to prayer, especially with Ken and providing a job there. And Father, we continue to pray for, of course, for the Speedies as well as for the Sinclairs and their uh, recovery, healing. Father, we pray for this congregation. We just pray that you would provide for those who have various needs and we're thankful for the way in which different people in the congregation come together and help others. Also pray for Kendall Weeks and his recovery, that the doctors will get have wisdom and that uh, uh, they will have caught this quickly and can uh, re- it can reverse itself and that he'll be able to uh, uh, get, get, regain his strength uh, quickly. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that you will strengthen us with your word, help us to understand these things and challenge us as we reflect upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 4. We are back in Acts moving forward after a brief diversion into the topic of uh, when when is it right, if ever, for a believer to disobey an authority. We finished up last time, and we're starting in verse 23, but let me just recap briefly what has happened. In chapter 3, Peter and John healed the lame man at the gate beautiful at the temple. As a result of that, and because of the crowds that saw what took place as this lame man who'd been lame from birth begins to leap around, praising God around the temple, a crowd gathered and Peter and John uh, began to speak to them. Peter is the one who is, uh, gives the message beginning in verse 13, and he concludes it by challenging his listeners that they need to uh, turn and accept Jesus, repent and accept him as the Messiah, that the time of restoration of all things would come. And that's in verse 21. Because of all of the, all of the um, confusion and excitement and everything going on in the Temple Mount, it did not take the uh, Sanhedrin and the Temple Guards long before they 
uh, were on the spot, and they arrested Peter and John, put them in a holding cell overnight, and then um, the next morning brought them before the Sanhedrin for an interrogation, and then it became obvious to them that these men were not going to um, change and that they were going to continue uh, with proclaiming their message. So they had a meeting uh, where they realized that because everyone in the city knew about this lame man who had been healed, and they understood that, that it was a genuine healing and a miracle that they couldn't refute, they came back and they could not punish Peter and John, but what they attempted to do was intimidate them and, com- and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. Now, I want to make sure we had this clear. Peter and John responded, but not out of anger, not in a defensive manner, but they, they, in actuality, they sort of turned the tables on the Sanhedrin and they said, and they asked them a question, whether it was right uh, in the sight of God to obey them or to listen to God, let them be the judge. So you see, it's just a very slick way in which they reversed the focus of the hearing back onto the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin then threatened them a little more and uh, but they could not punish them, so they sent them on their way. Having had that happen, they now return to the other believers in Jerusalem, and they give them a report. In verse 23, being let go, they went to their own and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, this leads immediately into a prayer meeting. Now, we just finished having prayer meeting, and uh, this led to a prayer meeting uh, as a response to the report. Verse 24, so when they heard that, that is, the companions had heard what they had reported, they raised their voice to God and with one accord and said, and then what follows is a prayer that extends down through verse 30, And then we will see the answer, the divine answer to the prayer, beginning in verse 31. There are a lot of lessons in this chapter, in the last part of this chapter, on prayer. And so I want to start by just an introduction, because what we see here is a great example in the text of how a believer is to base prayer upon Scripture. And what is uh, foundational to this is a knowledge of Scripture. And we see in this prayer, and it's always impressed me how they weave together different verses and from different passages in Scripture by way of application. It's not a direct fulfillment type of situation. They're applying these principles. They're drawing from different passages. And so it's important to go back and look at those passages as we study this. But first, a couple of points on the importance of prayer. In the New Testament, prayer is emphasized as an ongoing, habitual pattern in every believer's life. Colossians 4.2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, we're studying in Colossians right now on Sunday morning, and we know that this was not written to uh, pastors. This wasn't written to seminary students. This wasn't written to missionaries. This was written to the everyday people, the craftsmen, the tradespeople, the business people who were part of the church in Colossae. And Paul begins this with a command. 
he says that they are to devote themselves to prayer. This is, as you see up on the screen, this is the Greek verb proskartereo, and it is in the a, a present active imperative. Now, a present imperative verb emphasizes something that should be an ongoing action, something that is to characterize our life on a day-to-day basis. It is to be a standard operating procedure, a, a normal characteristic of our life. That's the emphasis of a present imperative. An aorist imperative, on the other hand, would emphasize making something that wasn't a priority a priority. So here the emphasis isn't on making something a priority that isn't a priority. It's on making it a standard procedure in our life, a con- ongoing procedure. The verb proskartereo means to continue to do something with an intense effort. That means it's something that is thought about, something that is planned for, something that is where you set aside time to accomplish it. It is done with... Um, uh, it has the idea of overcoming possible uh, difficulty or obstacles, which often happens in prayer. I don't know. We all have had that experience. We're going to take time to pray. The phone rings. Uh, something happens. We get interrupted. We get, get called by someone in the house to do something, whatever it might be. And so this word emphasizes that this is, this is a, a priority. It should continuously characterize our life. We should set aside time on a day-to-day basis uh, to do this and throughout the day. Uh, prayer does not have to be lengthy. It, you, there are different kinds of prayers, as we'll see, and there are different lengths of prayers. If this is a, a record of the entire prayer, then it only took uh, a minute or so to pray this prayer. Prayer does not have to be lengthy, but it has to be regular and ongoing. So the mandate is to devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving so that our mental attitude that envelops prayer is one of gratitude toward God for all that he is doing and all that he's provided for us in our life. Now, this word proskartereo is used in a couple of other passages in Scripture that help us to understand uh, its application and use. In Acts one fourteen, we read, These all, that's referring to the disciples, this is back in Acts 1, right after Jesus had ascended, referring to the disciples and the others that were with them, the 120 who had met in the upper room, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The word there translated continued has that idea of uh, being devoted to uh, to prayer. Romans 12.12 says that we're to be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly. There's that same word again. Continuing steadfastly or with an intense effort in prayer. And then in Acts 2.42, one of the characteristics, a summary, Luke has all these summaries. I really haven't, I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but Throughout Acts, we're going to see Luke take time to just sort of summarize and give a progress report, as it were, on the church. And Acts 2.42 is one of his first progress reports. He, verse 41, he says, uh, Then those who gladly received his word, that is, that first Pentecost Day sermon of Peter's, 
those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly. That's that word proskartereo again. They, they made a, a determined, intense effort uh, in, the, in continuing in the apostles' teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. So again, we have this word applied to not only prayer, but also in the study of the word, the study of doctrine. It's, it's a priority, but it's a day-to-day emphasis. Now, another passage we have is 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which is actually the shortest verse in the New Testament in the Greek. A lot of people think it's that verse over in John 11, Jesus wept. That's the shortest verse in English, only two words, but it's three words in Greek. This is the shortest uh, verse in the Greek. Pray without ceasing. And the emphasis is on prayer, again, is a present imperative, meaning that it is to characterize our life continuously and without ceasing. Uh, the Greek word is adioleptos, meaning persistently or habitually. So prayer is to continuously characterize our lives, and we have to make it a point. This is a focal point in our Christian life, our spiritual life. Now, by way of a definition, I broke it down into sections here, and I'll read through the whole thing, and then we'll come back and I'll make a couple of comments. Prayer is a grace provision of the royal priesthood. I'm just talking about prayer in the church age. Prayer is that grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church age believer has accessed, access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Because Jesus Christ died for our sins, the veil separating us from God, we don't have to go to God through an intermediate priesthood. Every believer is a priest to God. That was one of the important doctrines that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had reasserted a priesthood as part of their replacement theology and their belief that the church replaced Israel. They had developed by the 4th, 5th, 6th century uh, in Christianity the idea that the the, uh, uh, ministry was to be patterned on the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. And so they, again, inserted a level, a layer of clergy between the people and God. And uh, part of what took place in the Protestant Reformation was a recognition that every believer is a priest and has direct access to God. So it is a grace provision that allows us to have direct communion, fellowship with God. So we have access and the privilege to come directly into before the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.12. And access and privilege to communicate directly with God. Now, the purpose of this communication is <clears throat> to acknowledge our sin, confession, to express adoration and praise to God, to give thanks for what God has provided, and to intercede for others as well as to convey our own personal needs and petitions and to uh, just talk with God about whatever we wish to discuss with God. Now, I've taken that and broken it down into a four-point acronym, CATS, C-A-T-S, Confession, Adoration, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Supplication is the idea of making a request to God 
When we make it on the behalf of other people, that's intercession. When we make it on behalf of ourselves, that is petition. That's how I'm breaking those words down. So we have, conf- and, and each of those elements can be a, uh, can be a prayer in and of itself. We, we have examples of that in the Psalms. Psalm 51 is a prayer of confession. You have other Psalms, we'll look at Psalm 146 tonight, which is a praise Psalm. That's a Psalm primarily of adoration. You have other Psalms that are Psalms of thanksgiving and uh, other Psalms that focus primarily on supplication. So each element can be a prayer in and of itself, or you can have a prayer that has, has all of those elements. You don't have to have all those elements in every prayer. We need to make sure we're in fellowship as as uh, David said in Psalm 66:18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So we have to confess our sins to make sure that there's a clean slate, we're in fellowship, and then our prayers will be heard. So let's look at what happens in, the, in our passage. In Acts 4.23, Peter and John are released. They go back to their own companions, to their to the other believers there, the other disciples. We're not told exactly who was there, but it was uh, other believers. Uh, We would assume it was the disciples and maybe some others. And they gave a report, and notice that little three-letter word that's there. They reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Before they prayed, they got the facts, they, were, they got all the facts. They didn't just get all excited that Peter and John were back and immediately say, let's pray and, and get on their knees and just start praying uh, in ignorance. They waited until they had information, and they got all the information. They, they got a full report, a complete debriefing from Peter and John before they prayed. So this is a one of the first principles we see related to prayer is that effective prayer relies on fact and not feeling. The emphasis is on knowledge and content. It's not on emotion. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that prayer isn't emotional. You cannot help but realize the depths of emotion in many of the Psalms as you read them And many, if not most, of the psalms were originally written as prayers. It's just like many of the hymns that we sing in our hymn book. uh, Many of those hymns were written by uh, men whose first uh, focus was writing poetry. They were writing verse. They were not writing it initially to be sung. Now, there are many that were written to be sung, but there are Many, many hymns that we sing were originally uh, written as verse, and then later someone took the verse and combined it with music. And that is what happens with the Psalms. The Psalms were originally written as prayers, and then they were put together and added to, with, with music uh, to be sung. So the focus is on the facts and not just on getting distracted by all the emotion and the excitement of the time. Trust me, there was a lot of excitement when Peter and John were were released, but their focus is on the Lord. It is amazing what happens when you're in the midst of an emotional situation. Uh, It can be a good emotional situation or it can be a time of sorrow and heartache 
But when you start reading the scriptures, you start claiming promises, you start focusing on the word, all of a sudden those emotions begin to quiet down and become stabilized and we're able to focus and to think as opposed to simply emote. So they focused on what had happened. They listened to the circumstances as described um, as described by Peter and John. Now, if you look at verse 24, we're told then, after they heard this, not when they heard it, it would be uh, after they heard it. Uh, it's not a contemporaneous thing. After they had heard the report, after it was finished, we're told they raised their voice to God with one accord. Now, the way we read that in the English it makes it look as if this was something they did very rapidly. Now, they might have done this fairly rapidly, but as you go through the prayer and understand the structure of this prayer, I'm not sure that this was something that was done extemporaneously. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with extemporaneous praying. We are in a tradition in Bible churches uh, that come out of what is usually referred to as a low church tradition. Uh, if that terminology is new to you, high church is very ritualistic, liturgical, very formal, Roman Catholic, high church Episcopal, uh, some high church Presbyterian. And those that were more, a little more informal, less liturgical, less ritualistic, were referred to as low church, uh, Methodist. Church. I don't know how much you've uh, learned about the tradition of Bible churches, but many Bible churches got started in the period of the 19-teens and 1920s in the context of what was called the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy. The modernist controversy, modernism was brought in by the Enlightenment during the 17th, 18th century and really began to impact uh, the churches in America about the midpoint of the 19th century, just about just before the American Civil War. But it wasn't until after the war between the states that that it really began to be divisive in the churches, and it affected different denominations in different ways. One of the ways they were impacted was that uh, that the churches would send off their pastors to. Uh, seminaries and universities to be trained as they always had, but something had happened at those uh, universities, especially if you were Presbyterian, you wanted to send uh, your young men back to uh, Scotland, to Edinburgh or Aberdeen to be trained for the ministry, and something had transpired there. You sent them back, if you were Lutheran, you sent them back to Germany. Something had changed, and with the uh, onslaught of uh, rationalism, and by that I mean uh, submitting everything in Scripture to a rational, rationalistic mindset, meaning that it was it completely rejected from from the get-go, from the very beginning, any any belief in miracles or supernatural. That was the presupposition of of uh, 19th century German rationalism was that, that miracles couldn't have taken place. Uh, Moses couldn't have parted the Red Sea. We'd never seen anything like that happen, so it couldn't have happened. It's, it's, does, we can't rationally explain it. 
uh, miracles, the virgin birth, things like this were, were rejected out of hand. And so as these young men went back to the seminaries and imbibed uh, the um, um, various uh, doctrines of 19th century Protestant literalism, when they came back to their churches and they didn't believe in the virgin birth or physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, or they didn't believe in miracles, then uh, they, of course, they were prepared uh, academically, and so they often convinced people in their congregations they were right, churches split, things like that happened. Um, Baraka Church was started that way. In the 19, early 1930s, they had a man uh, down from a church in, I think it was Pittsburgh, who are, was it Pittsburgh or Philadelphia? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, who was, his home church was called Baraka Church. That's where they got the name. And he was teaching at a Methodist church in the Heights. And he was teaching a, an, a young adult class, young married couples. And it was a rather large class, very popular. He was a good teacher. But the Methodist church got a new pastor, and the new pastor didn't believe in the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, didn't believe in the virgin birth, didn't believe in miracles. And he called this man into his office and said, well, I understand that you, you are a fundamentalist and, and that's no longer acceptable in this church. So I'm going to have to uh, ask you to no longer teach your Sunday school class. Well, that man informed all the members of his Sunday school class and the whole class And in the Methodist Church, if you're not familiar with it, they were organized individually. They had a president and a vice president, a secretary, and that's how they'd organize their Sunday school classes. The whole class left, and they started a new church. And they met in the Heights for many years, went through two or three different pastors, and then went downtown, and and then most of you know the rest of the story. But that is typical. That is almost a paradigm of how Bible churches got started uh, over the years. And in Bible churches, we have this sort of low church approach where we pray extemporaneously. We don't come in and we don't sit down and spend a pastor, I don't know any pastors who sit down and write out their prayers and work on them for uh, four or five hours a week and then come in and read their prayer on Sunday morning. That's typical in a high church tradition. But there's nothing wrong with that. In, in fact, what it, it focuses your attention on a lot of things, and many written prayers of that type are, are quite wonderful. And you go back and read, for example, the uh, English Book of Common Prayer from, I think it's like 1760 or 1770, somewhere right there in that period, and they have wonderful prayers in that book. And they had uh, tremendous appreciation for doctrine. So different church groups, different denominations have different approaches to prayer, uh, and they're all, uh, I think, all equally valid. And I think this was one of those prayers that they, it, it has the appearance of some thought that went into it. Now, that could just be because they have finally learned how to pray. Remember, these are the same disciples who went to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And that's when the Lord Jesus gave them the what is called the Lord's Prayer, but isn't the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. It's a model prayer for them for how to pray. But but this is a uh, different kind of prayer in that it is built off of an understanding of some Old Testament passages. So to understand it, we really need to understand how they're, the mechanics of how they're putting this prayer together. So after they heard the report, they raised their voice to God. Now, the after they heard the report could be 10 minutes later, 30 minutes later, an hour later. 
as they sat and they thought about this prayer, and they raised their voice to God, and in and in a unity of mind, that could be just because one person leads them. It doesn't mean that they all prayed uh, together, although that is implied by the use of the uh, third-person plural, their voice to God. And that, again, would give support to the view that they had written this out so that they are praying it or reciting it together in unison. And so they begin with a quote from the Old Testament. And the quote comes from a couple of different passages, one of which is in uh, Psalm 146. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 146. I'm going to read Acts 4.24 to you while you're turning to Psalm 146. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to, after they, after they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who didst make the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 146, 6, although that phraseology is found in some other, uh, some other verses. It begins with adoration in this initial part. Adoration is that part of a prayer which focuses our attention upon who God is and what he has done. It is a synonym for praise. I'm almost hesitant to use the word praise today because it has sort of been diluted by contemporary praise worship or praise chorus music, which is uh, ex- extremely shallow and superficial in its reflections upon God. And I have done critiques of the modern contemporary uh, Christian music scene uh, very well. I'm reading another book that I just learned about when I was away on conference last week called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns and How the Contemporary Christian uh, Worship Scene Has uh, impacted and changed and diluted the hymnal. Excellent, excellent piece of uh, analysis. So at the beginning of the prayer, the focus is on who God is. And I'm, I tell you, this is one of the most significant things that you can do in, whenever you're encountering anything difficult in life is to take time just to focus on the essence of God. You just remember who he is. I usually, we usually have the essence listed under 10 attributes. There are other ways in which we can express this. Well, we think of God as sovereign, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, veracity, and immutability. Omniscient means that God knows everything. When you think about whatever the crisis is in your life, it's not a surprise to God. In his omniscience, he's known about it for eternity. In his omnipotence, he's able to handle the problem. There's no problem too great for God to handle. He may not handle it the way you think it ought to be handled, but then since you're not omniscient, he has a better way, he knows a better way to handle it. Because he's omnipresent, we know he's with us always, even in the midst of those crises when we think he is furthest away from us. Now, as they do this and they begin the prayer, they're focusing on one particular aspect 
of God's character, and that is that he is the creator. He is the one who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. Now, this is, phrase is found in uh, Exodus 20, verse 11, as part of the commandment to uh, observe the Sabbath, that uh, the Jews were commanded to work six days and rest the seventh, for uh, in six days God made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. And we see that in passages like Exodus 20, verse 11, but it's also in a number of other passages in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 16:26. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. See, the, what are you emphasizing when you're emphasizing God as the creator of everything? We're, you're emphasizing his sovereignty. His, the fact that he is the creator gives him the right to dictate the rules for his creation to run things the way he sees fit and because he establishes the laws that run the universe. So it is establishing him as the ultimate authority. Now, what, what's the situation been? The situation has been that Peter and John been dragged and before the Sanhedrin, threatened and intimidated by the Sanhedrin and ordered not to uh, proclaim the gospel anymore. So it's an authority issue. So when they pray, the first thing they do is they go to Old Testament phraseology that reinforces the reality of God's ultimate authority over the universe and over their circumstances. Nehemiah and Nehemiah 9.6 expanded this terminology a little bit, also in a prayer at a time when uh, the Jewish people who had returned and are rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem are being attacked by the so-called Palestinians of that day, by the mixed people who had uh, Samaria, who did not want them to come back and to take over the land again, very similar situation to what we have today, and were threatening them with violence and military action and other things, and so Nehemiah goes to the Lord in prayer in chapter 9, and he says, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Again, it, is, it takes at the beginning of prayer, it takes our, our mindset and focuses it on just who God is as the God who is over everything. And, and the bigger God appears in our thinking, the smaller our problems will uh, appear. They will just shrink. Another thing to do is go through the Psalms. Here are four verses, four verses in the Psalms that all reiterate the same idea. Psalm 121.2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our, Psalm 124.8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Uh, Psalm 134.3, the Lord who made heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. Psalm 136.5, to him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. Now, how is the God of Abraham, Jake, Isaac, and Jacob identified? He's identified again and again and again as the God who made the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them. It's creation. If you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
if you're going to be consistent with that belief, which comes only from Genesis 12 through 50, if you're going to believe that, you cannot throw out Genesis 1 through 11 unless you just don't like being consistent. Genesis 12, with the call of Abram, that God is going to make him a special people through his seed, through Isaac and Jacob, is built on the historicity and the truth of Genesis 1 to 11, which begins with creation. The creator God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas is not an option. Creationism isn't optional if you're going to believe anything in the Bible from Genesis 12 to the end of Revelation. It's all built on the historicity of Genesis 1 to 11. That's why there's such an assault on that. But you can't escape the fact again and again and again through, throughout uh, the Old Testament, this emphasis on God is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas. I've had people say, well, why do you get so upset about creation? Why is this such a big deal? This is why it's a big deal. Because God is in the Bible is defined as the God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in, not some of it, all that is in there. Isaiah 37 verse 16 says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. That's a reference to the uh, two cherubs on top of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the one who dwells between the cherubs. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, our Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. That's the point that Peter and John are making here in this prayer. It is nothing is too hard for God. They may be opposed by politicians. They may be opposed by religious leaders. They may be opposed by financial circumstances or whatever the situation may be. But there is a God who made everything in the heavens and the earth, and nothing is too hard for him. That just focuses their attention on who God is and his omniscience. So they're going to quote from Psalm 146, verse 6. And I thought it would be uh, illuminating and helpful just to look at the whole context of Psalm 146. This is a tremendous praise psalm. If someone wants to learn how to truly praise God and sing a praise to God in a way that has uh, depth and significance, then this would be a place, one of the psalms to begin with, to take the verbiage, the structure of this psalm, and to see how that develops within uh, and compares to some of the uh, 7-11 songs, choruses that they sing today, you know, seven verses, seven words sung 11 times. Okay, this is a praise psalm, a little introduction to Psalm 146. This is a praise psalm. It's not attributed to any particular author. The uh, psalmist in a psalm of, uh, in a praise psalm, calls his listeners to uh, praise the Lord, to come before the Lord. He is going to explain why we should praise the Lord, and then he is going to um, uh, express his own praise to God. So he begins with a command. The first, first verse begins... Praise the Lord. In Hebrew, this is hallelujah. 
Hallelu is the um, uh, second person plural command to praise. Yah is the first syllable in the name of Yahweh. So literally it's praise Yahweh. It is a command to those who are listening to praise Yahweh. This is the beginning. There are 150 psalms. The last five psalms, Psalm 146 to Psalm 150, are called the Great Hallel. There's a couple of different Hallel groups of psalms. There's the Egyptian Hallel, which was sung at Passover, at Pesach, Psalm 113 through 118. Uh, this is the final praise, Psalm 140, collection of praise psalms, Psalm 146 uh, to 150. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul referring to himself. He's calling upon himself to praise the Lord and focus the attention of people. And so this is the uh, command to pray. And then in verse 2, there is a declaration of praise where he vows, the psalmist vows to sing praise to God. He says, I will praise Yahweh while I live. I will praise Yahweh. Yahweh, while I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. We can see that there is a uh, synonymous parallelism here. The first line is mirrored in the thought of the second line. Uh, First line, while I live, I will praise the Lord. Second line uh, starts off, I will praise, and then picks up the first part of, uh, mirrors the first part of the first line, to my God while I have my being. And then having made his declaration or his vow of praise, he begins to express in the next uh, few verses uh, his convictions about praise and why God is worthy of praise. This is seen specifically in verses 3 through 5. Why is God worthy of praise? In Psalm 146, verse 3, God is worthy of praise because only God is immutable and all-powerful. He is contrasted to the fallibility and finitude of human beings. Do not trust in princes. That's a great verse for the beginning of our uh, election reality show over the next uh, uh, 14 months or so. Do not trust in princes. I don't care who you're voting for, what party you're aligned with, who you believe is the next Messiah. He's not. He's fallible, and they're all guilty of numerous flaws. Don't put your trust in princes, in mortal man, emphasizing the contrast between God, the eternal, immortal, omnipotent, and man who is finite. He lives today, but he is gone tomorrow. Do not put trust in princes in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. They just can't do it. All the promises that politicians make, they cannot provide health and happiness. They cannot. They can only do what the U.S. Constitution says, and that is to provide an environment where the individual citizen, in utilizing his own personal volition, can decide to pursue his own path for health and happiness. But the government can't provide it for you. They can't do it through Obamacare or 
Romney Care or Perry Care or whoever else's care is being popularized today. They can't do it with the Canadian system, the single payer system, the British system. It's impossible. It just creates a more and more of a financial mess. Mortal man cannot solve the ultimate questions. I think one of the reasons today people become so 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 absorbed with health care and trying to stay alive is because they don't know what happens when they die. And so they just they want to stay they want to invest everything they can into staying alive as long as they can because ultimately they don't know what happens after their heart stops. And as long as they don't know what happens, then they try to stay alive. They try to hold on to this life. And Scripture gives us hope and confidence. And so we know that if we have whatever it may be, heart attack, stroke, cancer, that this is just the way we're exiting this life and entering into an eternal relationship with God in heaven. We know precisely where we're going because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for for sin. So we don't put our ultimate hope in politics, we may like it, we may enjoy it, we may love the rough and tumble argument, follow it, all of those things, but we don't put our ultimate trust and hope in that because we know every governmental system, every political system, every politician is a fallen sinner and they just can't provide what they claim they can provide. So in contrast to God who is able to solve our problems, man cannot Psalm 146.3. Why? That's explained in the next verse. Because his spirit departs. See, man doesn't live forever. He's going to die and his, his spirit will leave the body. And the body will go into the grave and corruption and man is finite. He's only here, as Moses said in Psalm 90, for three score and ten. Then you're gone. And that's just, just a, he, his life, as Moses says, is like a vapor like those cold mornings that we wish would hurry up and come here in Houston and this long, hot summer would end. Uh, and you wake up and it's 40 degrees and it's cold and crisp and winter's finally come. That's winter here. We don't have autumn. And you get up and go outside and you breathe and you see your, your, your breath in the air and it disappears within a couple of seconds. That's what life is like. That's what the psalmist is saying here. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth, that is, the body goes to the ground, and in that very day, his thoughts perish. It's not saying that there's no life after death. He's saying that as far as the impact that any of us is going to have on life on this earth, it ends the day we die. I don't care how ironclad your will is. I don't care what you do to try to uh, control events after you die. I don't care how many O's are taken, how many, uh, how many signatures are made in blood. They're challenged in court and changed the very next day. Once you die, that's the end of your influence. Man is mortal. He's limited. He's finite. He can't solve the problem. That's what the psalmist is saying. But in contrast, he says, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. It's the God of Jacob who preserved the family of Jacob by bringing them down uh, to Egypt, where earlier he had brought Joseph. 
It is the God of Jacob who delivered the uh, Israelites from slavery in Egypt and uh, brought them back to the land. It's the God of Jacob who overcame the uh, military forces of Jericho and Ai and all the other battles in the conquest. It's the, it's the God of Jacob who uh, empowered uh, Deborah and Barak against the uh, chariots of Sisera. It's uh, the God of Jacob who gave power to Gideon. It's the God of Jacob who... Uh, even though Samson was a, a, a loser, a womanizer, and, and, uh, an arrogant, and, and, and an arrogant narcissist, it's the God of Jacob who gave him the power over the Philistines. It's the God of Jacob who gave power to David over Goliath. This is what he's focusing on, is that blessed is the man whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope or whose confidence, that's the idea of hope there, whose confidence is in the Lord his God. And so in verses 3 through 5, the psalmist is saying that God, because of who he is, because he is omnipotent, because he is not finite, because he is infinite, is the one who is worthy of praise. And then in verse 6, and this is the quote that, that Peter and John pick up over in Acts 4, this God is defined. He's not just the God of Jacob. He is the God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Everything. That means the fossils. That He didn't mean that make them as fossils, but the creatures whose remains made those fossils. Those creatures were made by God. Dinosaurs, trilobites, clams, whatever, starfish, whatever you have in the fossils, all those creatures were made by God. God, everything. It's not some things, not most things. He made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And it always goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, this is why Peter and John go to this verse. They pull out this verse because it's emphasizing the authority of God over his creation, which includes the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders in Jerusalem who are threatening them and in opposition to them. But there's something else that goes on as, you read, as we read through the rest of this psalm, is that we begin to see ten things that the psalmist emphasizes about what God provides for us. And this is a great lesson for us in how to pray from the psalms and how to be reminded of God's character his attributes, and connect this to other, other promises. The first thing that he says, after he says that identifies the God as the one who made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, he says he keeps truth forever. What does that mean? That means he is faithful. He holds to the truth. He doesn't vary. We're reminded of the passage in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 that uh, God do, does not. Uh, God does not lie. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the first principle he relates is that God is faithful. He's the one who keeps faith or keeps truth forever. The word there, emmet, that is translated truth or faith, depending on your translation, is a word that could mean either one: faithful, meaning stable, non-changing, and truth also has that idea as that which is eternal which never changes. Lamentations, this reminds us of Lamentations 3, 21 through 23, 
written by Jeremiah after the first temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. In the midst of the heartache, in the midst of his exile, he writes, This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. See, hope doesn't come from your emotions. Hope comes from what you're thinking about, and it comes from eternal truth. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope or confidence that through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. The next attribute that he mentions in the first part of verse 7, he executes justice for the oppressed. This reminds me of Psalm 37, 5 and 6, which says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. See, the idea here is that there's the oppressed who is being treated unjustly, but God is the one who will take a stand for us and bring forth our righteousness as the light and our justice as the noonday. Third thing in the second part of seven is that God provides food. He provides the physical sustenance that we need. He gives food to the hungry. And you can think of God feeding Elijah at the brook Kareth. You can think of other episodes, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, when God is, uh, provides food for, for believers, the manna he supplied for Israel during their 40 years in, in the wilderness. Also in Luke 12, 22 and 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Jesus said that, um, that we are to put our focus on spiritual food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Also in the, this verse, the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. This is what happens at salvation. We are freed from tyranny of sin. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. In Galatians 6, 1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. As we get into verse 8, the first part of verse 8 says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Ephesians 1, 18, Paul prays that the eyes of our understanding might be enlightened, that we might know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? In the next line in verse 8, uh, God is the one who raises those who are bowed down, those who are pressed, depressed, those who are overwhelmed by their circumstances. He is the God who encourages and gives us real comfort from his word. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us. In all our tribulation, it is God who comforts us. He comforts us through the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us. He comforts us with his word, and he comforts us with other believers who encourage us from his word. He is the one who comforts us in all our, our affliction, that we may be able to uh, comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
then at the end of the verse, we read that God is the one who loves the righteous. His love is not based on who we are, but on who he is. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord is the one who protects uh, us. He watches over the strangers. He watches over those who cannot uh, protect themselves. Psalm 18, 2 and 3, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Uh, My stronghold, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. He is the one who gives support to the helpless. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. Uh, Psalm 71, 3 and 4. This applies to both the ninth and the tenth point. Psalm 71, be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. This applies, that second verse, Psalm 71, 4, applies to the tenth characteristic that's stated at the end of verse um, at the end of verse 9, the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. Uh, the way of the wicked, he says, uh, frust- the way of the wicked is frustrated uh, by God. He is the one who overturns his plans. This happened many, many times in Scripture with the uh, uh, plans of those who sought to do evil to the Jewish people. We think of Ahab and Jezebel, uh, Sennacherib, Haman, and many others uh, in the Old Testament. Now, the focal point of the opening part of their prayer is on God's power. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 states, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. When we say God is the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, that sets the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, apart from all other gods and goddesses that human beings invented because this God is not a God of human invention. And so God says to, uh, to Isaiah, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I'm God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet, yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my uh, good pleasure. So they focus upon who God is and that God is greater than their problem. The next thing they're going to do is to go to Psalm 2. Now, we've been in Psalm 2 many times in the past, and, and that shows you how important Psalm 2 is to understanding many aspects of, uh, of the New Testament. So we'll come back next time, and I'll start in Acts 4.25, where we will uh, see how Peter and John and the disciples in this gathering are using Psalm 2 and applying it in their particular prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to focus upon your your word, your power, who you are, and that the more we focus upon you and the more that you uh, are uh, part of our thinking, then the smaller and more insignificant our problems become because you are greater than any problem that we face in this life And we come to understand that we are here to serve you in the midst of whatever the circumstances are that we find ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.